research for what? So hi everyone, my name is Ron Bouvray and I am the Business Strategy Manager at the Department for Single Molecule Science at the University of, Sid of New South Wales in Sydney. Beside my role, I also recently created a website and a podcast series called Research for What? to discuss and promote research, its purpose and impact. Today, I'm delighted to welcome everyone to this virtual event, Maximizing Research Impact, which is a part of a, a National Science Week, a program supported by Inspiring Australia. To start this event, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we all work and live today, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this webinar. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I would also like to thank two people. First one is um, Kat Gauss. Kat was the first person who said, yes, this is a great idea, let's do it. However, today, uh, for health reasons, she cannot attend but I still want to send my thanks and best wishes. The second person I want to thank is Sue Liu for helping me prepare this event. And thanks to them, uh, I've uh, had a look before and we have 230 registrations, which is fantastic, and meant that I had to upgrade my Zoom license. <laughs> Today, we have, I have invited eight speakers to play a theoretical but very realis realistic scenario. Now, the reason that this is going to be a hypothetical scenario is to allow the speakers to talk openly while providing non-binding advice. This should also allow the researchers to apply today's conversations to their own discoveries. Okay, how are we going to play this? There are going to be eight short five-minute acts, each led by one of our eight guests. The speakers are real, not hypothetical. They're experts and they do research they invest in research, or they help others maximize their research. So in the first act today, the researcher will be Vashnavi Anantha Narayanan. Vashnavi is an assistant professor at the Center for Biosystem Science and Engineering at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. Her area of research is quantitative cell biology. Vashnavi did her PhD at the Max Planck Institute in Dresden, Germany, She's a Welcome Trust DBD India Alliance Intermediate Fellow and an Embo Young Investigator. Vashnavi will introduce her discovery that she developed in her lab at the center of today's conversation. Now, Act 2 to Act 6, we see our experts try and convince Vashnavi to engage and or collaborate with them. The first one will be Marcel Dinger. Marcel is head of school and professor at the School of Biotech and Biomolecular Sciences at UNSW and will represent academia. Then we'll have Justin Gooding, who wears different hats, but today will be the editor-in-chief for ACS Census, and we represent publishing. Then we'll hear from Julio Ribeiro, the CEO of Inventia Life Science, who will be our startup founder and entrepreneur. We'll then hear from Natasha Rawlings, investment manager at Uniseed. She will be our early-stage investor. Then Martha Dombrain, senior director and head global research innovation at CSL, will represent the giant global biotech company. On call, we also have Nicholas Milne, engineer, patent and trademark attorney at Patentech. Nicholas is here to answer any questions about intellectual property or IP. All experts will be able to call on Nick at any stage if they need any clarification about intellectual property. Then the final act, it will be from Erin Raymond. Erin is a chair of Knowledge Commercialization Australasia and Director of Engagement at the 
Queensland University of Technology. She will bring her expertise and experience to help our researcher, Vashnavi, clarify impacts and choose one or multiple pathways. I should say, everyone should stay until the end of the, of the webinar because you'll all get a chance to help Vashnavi choose one or multiple pathways. Vashnavi, I know it's uh, early for you. Are, you. are you ready to start and to present your discovery? Yeah, Ram, I am. Thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah, so I'll very quickly go into what um, I need help with from all the experts in the panel. So in the course of our regular research, we've actually just stumbled upon a really nice technique that uh, it proves to be a cost-effective and early diagnostic test for tuberculosis. Um, it's also high throughput, and so we can go through several samples in one go. And we're very excited about the possibilities as a result, and we can't wait to share it with the world. But we now have a dilemma. Uh, we don't quite understand what the best way forward is. Uh, this work was led by a talented postdoctoral research fellow in the lab uh, who hopes to remain in academia. So publishing this will obviously um, have the most impact for her. But uh, being an academic researcher myself, uh, also getting this work would, uh, published would help us attract more funding for the future and in general will be better for my career progression as well. Um, we hope there's, of course, interest in this work from publishers, but we're not quite sure which journal to approach. Um, on the other hand, um, getting this diagnostic into the world, out into the world, will have more real-world impact, of course, seeing that TB is one of the biggest killers amongst communicable diseases in India. But we're not quite sure what it means to get it out into the world. Uh, do you need to patent it? Do you need to collaborate with a company that can help you commercialize it? Or would we need to do a combination of both? Um, can we go ahead and patent it and then publish it thereafter is another question we've had, of course. So another aspect that we only just started exploring to the whole uh, diagnostic process is regulatory mechanisms. Is there something that we'll have to show at the time of patenting or commercialization? Uh, we don't know what the protocols are that are involved in this process. And there are also, of course, concerns of how long either of these options would take for us, right? So publishing and patenting uh, are lengthy and tedious processes at best. Um, so we do have a rough idea, of course, because we've been publishing in the past, uh, as to how long it could take between submission and publication in a regular journal. But how would this affect patentability? Uh, so we'd also like to learn as much as we can from all the experts on all of these options and what the outcomes could be based on which option we finally end up choosing. So that's where we are at. Great. Thanks, Vashnavi. Should we hear from academia first? Why should Vashnavi stay or continue her work in academia? Marcel, do you want to take it? Okay. Thanks, Vashnavi, and thanks, Rom. Um, that sounds, that's an extraordinary bit of uh, work that you've done there that's really, really exciting. And we'd love to, um, to, to work with you to help make this really become real and, uh, and, and have a transformative impact on, on the world and society. And I think the only way that you can really do that is by building very close ties with academia. I can certainly speak to the... School for Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences. We have a, a long and proud history of, uh, of commercialization of, um, of technologies. And um, I think where you'll really benefit is from, from the access that you have, not only to the extraordinary facilities that we have here at, at, at UNSW in terms of building and infrastructure and facilities, um, that really will be able to enable you to continue to develop and bring this product you know, really to its conclusion with really very minimal risk in terms of to yourself and to your career. Um, uh, 
uh, and and be able to navigate all of those challenges that you're going to have in terms of this commercialization project process. Um, I think that the the timelines for these things can be very challenging, and I think that the support that a university can give over a very long term is um, is, is something that you will really need. You know, if you involvement in commercial in a in uh, with companies and things, they tend to swing and change very easily from uh, in terms of their focuses and priorities, funding in terms of startups and things like that. So I, I, I think that you would be well placed to to do this in the context of of a university. And I think importantly as well, universities value the society and the impacts that can bring not only to Australia, but also to developing nations and, um, and, and uh, other charters around the world. So you can really have the, the knowledge that what you do will have long and lasting impacts. And I think lastly, what I'd, I'd like to, um, to really emphasize is that you'll have um, the opportunity to engage with really talented people um, you know, you've got access not only to the other academics and the many disciplines that we that we re- represent here, not just within the sciences, but across engineering, technology, computer science, all these other things that this technology that you've developed could really plug into and benefit from. And you'll have that all at your disposal um, uh, in an academic setting. And I think finally, you get access and a view to um, to genuinely inspire the next generation of scientists as well through access to students high degree students and PhD students, but also opportunities to really give back um, uh, um, to, to, to society in ways that are, that are unmanageable, I think, in other, in other contexts. So I think that's why those academic uh, collaboration and, and I think your affiliation there would be really terrific. We look forward to welcome you, welcoming you aboard. Vashnavi, any first reaction, Vashnavi? Yeah, so of course, um, having worked in academia, this makes a lot of sense to me already, right? Uh, yeah, so I completely agree with what Marshall's been saying about the being, having access to a multidisciplinary team of researchers that could possibly help us take it forward quite a bit more than perhaps maybe a biotech company. But then I have to learn, uh, hear from the biotech company first before I make a decision, I guess. <laughs> that, that might be the safest route for you at the moment because it's what, you, you know, what, you, what you've done before. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's hear from Justin. Justin, why is it uh, a good idea for Vashnavi to publish and maybe um, come to ACS Census? Well, that's a really great question, um, Rom. And uh, firstly, I'd like to congratulate Vashnavi on some unbelievable science and an unbelievable vision. And so um, what is the point of all that if nobody knows about it? And so clearly, I think you've got to heard, heard some tremendous arguments from Marcel and they're very, I, I agree with a lot of those arguments. They're also going to hear a lot of tremendous arguments from a whole lot of other people here. And so how do you, how do you choose? And the answer is actually you don't need to choose so much. As long as you publish, people will know about your work. And so why should you publish? Firstly, you should publish at the right time. And that means if you are thinking about commercialising, that you secure your IP before you disseminate it, out, disseminate it to the world. But then that publishing is possibly the most powerful advertising document you have, regardless of where you, how you choose to use it, in, in my opinion. And so some really important reasons to publish, you've already outlined some of them. You have a duty of care responsibility to the people that you work with, who you're mentoring and help further their career. Of course, 
your research is also funded by taxpayers and taxpayers essentially ask you to publish. Fairly obvious reasons, but there's even better reasons or more reasons to do that. So publishing means you undergo through a rigorous peer review process. And that rigorous peer review process that you'll go through with our, our journal will ensure that not only improves the science, but gives that, that, that technology that you're developing credibility. And so with that credibility, we believe it allows you to be investors to be more confident and hence allow you to um, uh, potentially attract in the investment that you need if you choose to take that uh, um, technology uh, to market. But also, um, if you do choose to give that te take that technology to market, it suddenly gives that technology itself credibility and it, and it becomes a very powerful advertising document because you're actually promoting here a cutting-edge technology. How do we know it works? You've heard that it's going to help your academic career, um, and, and that's with, without a doubt, but it's also going to help the academic career of all those around you. And, of course, if you don't publish and put it into the public domain, once you've secured your IP, then nobody knows who, who really came around up with that invention. So I should say, why should you publish with our journal? Because you did ask that, you raised that question. So um, we're actually launching a new journal and it's, the new journal is called uh, Nature, Science and Cell. And as you know, the, the, the best places to publish your work and hence the highest uh, advertising value and dissemination of the impact that your work could have are either nature or science or possibly self. So clearly the new journal, Nature, Science and Cell, is going to be three times better. And, and with that, um, I should also point out this is a society journal. It's not uh, a commercial journal. And so we're not going to go through those slow publication processes. We're going to allow you to get that information out there as quickly as possible. And not only that, any profits that are made um, by disseminating this research through our journal, Nature, Science and Cell, which is, as I said, society journal from the Society of Unbelievable Research, um, if, you don't, if you publish with us, that work, that money that the journal makes will be pumped back into other researchers that do unbelievable research. So I would say no matter what you do, you must publish. It's about um, making sure that you have all your other opportunities looked after before you give any away. So that's why I say publish and publish with us. Vashnavi, how does it feel to be asked to publish in Nature, Science and Cell? I surely wish this weren't a hypothetical situation and that the journal existed. But uh, yeah, so I think, of course, uh, publishing is something that we've done in the past. And as we the impression that it wasn't possible for you to publish and then patents from something. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong here. Um, is that something that can be done? You publish first and then patent? I thought it had to be the other way around, to patent first and then publish. Nick, do you want to take this one quick? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, Justin did allude to, um, if you're going to patent, it's always recommended to file a, a patent before you publish. Um, if you any, any publication of the invention before you file a patent can invalidate your patent. Um, so you want to get a filing date first before you publish. Um, and look, in terms of the, the patent procedure, the good um, recommended first step is the filing of what is called a provisional patent application. 
The provisional patent application is 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 a first, normally the first filing. It has less formality requirements than a complete patent. And what it does is establishes the international filing date. So the focus on filing a provisional patent application is to put in the detail. You'll get the filing date for the detail, and then after that, you can then go out and then publish without jeopardizing your rights in the invention. And other advantages of the provisional is that it it effectively gives you an initial 12 months of international patent pending. And it also gives you the ability to capture improvements. So as you further develop the diagnostic technique, you can capture those uh, improvements. And then what you want to do at the end of the 12 months is then make a decision as to, you know, how's it going commercially? And then you have the option of, you know, filing complete patents around the world. Maybe, uh, Justin, back to you. Can you uh, synchronize uh, um, provisional patent and the publication? So it is possible but generally i would recommend publishing uh, so patenting first but it can ho- follow very quickly thereafter um the, the 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 publication is not in public domain until it is actually put onto the web but these things are happening very quickly nowadays so i feel that it's i would be cautious and i should say uh Vashnavi, i'm also a practicing scientist and have been involved in these processes um and i feel that Things can happen really quickly in publishing or, as you know, with our competitor journals, Nature or Science or Cell, they could be very, very slow. But we're going to guarantee that it's we're going to get that information out into the public domain as quickly as possible. So I think Nick's advice is, is wise. Uh, secure your provisional, then very quickly you can get your information out into the public domain. Julio, I'd like to ask you why Vashnavi should maybe... Um create a startup and what would be the benefits and what would she need to, to do to achieve before she can do that? Okay, thanks for that and well done, Ranash. It's good to have a work that has an impact on human health, similar to what we're doing here. Um, I, as a business person, I'm going straight to the subject. What I would first is to ask the details about the, the invention. What is, because the first question you have to ask yourself is, who is going to be the customer? And who is going to be the one paying for the product? That's 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 where you all have to simplify everything. Say, what's the product I have, and who is going to be paying for it? Right. And from what I understood, if it's a tuberculosis, then you have to start to think about well, as a, as a disease that's not no first world disease, you might have to go through other uh, source of revenue or, or source of income for buying the product. For example, the the gates uh, from. Foundation uh, known to invest on malaria and tuberculosis disease, right? Then you have to start to think, okay, that's probably be likely to be the source of uh, income for that. The decision is do I create a company to start to commercialize that, or do I approach like a, a large farm like CSL to no, do the commercialization for me? And that's a very different approach because I have been both sides. I've been you know, part of a large company that I used to take commercialization from the start. And then you can start the business yourself. That decision, of course, is a personal decision, but then there's these things that you have to start to investigate is how am I going to start to have revenue and what's the, the time for revenue? When would that start to come? And what's the cost of implementing and creating the business? And then what's the likelihood of get investors come on board later on? And again, in the case of tuberculosis, you start to be in a situation where we have to look how you're going to be earning revenue on that, right? For a large farmer, it might be of interest because they have global reach straight away. 
know, that they might be interested in you know, sharing that with you. To start with, then you need to start to think about what's the, the initial the first step to do it. A small startup has to start to think about the early, uh, the early earning of revenue. They know as soon as you can go to the market, as soon as you can start to have income, you're in a much better position. If it's projects that require a long process of validation by FDA and TGA, you're placed in a situation where it becomes more long-term process, and then you need a much higher backing from companies minds. But it doesn't stop you from creating a company and commercializing the technology. And the other aspect that we mentioned before is the patent, right? To ensure that any investor, first thing they're going to be asking you is, what is your protection for that? Again, if you plan to do that, it's best to start to think carefully. You no, know, all those decisions, publishing, patent, everything has to be done with you no know, overall view of what the product is and who is, who is, the, who is the buyer, right? For you to start to discuss this with anyone or any potential investor, you better have it protected. Again, patent should be the first thought if you have something that can be secure as a patent. Let's assume that what you have is know-how, means that you cannot protect it by patenting. Then you're in a difficult situation because if you publish that, you're giving that to everyone. Right? But if you have something that can be protected by patent, then you're in a much more secure place. And then go back uh, the discussion by Justin about publishing. If you're going to publish something, then you have to be very careful what you're disclosing because if you just know how, once you gave it out, everybody can use it. All those, those have to be taken into account. And then once you decide to go ahead with the company and then you say, okay, I'm going to approach, let's say, the Gates Foundation to get you no know, support, early support, it means that you have to have the patent to have the protection as well because then they would you know, more likely to support you, right? And uh, the other aspect of that is if when you go to a large company where I you know, have the experience before, they pre- require that you have much more advanced stage of where you are now. They would want to be something much more because, as you can imagine, they've been bombarded by people all over the world asking for, you know, for invention. It means that you need to have it well, well prepared. The university has the Department of Commercialization that can help you prepare the documents for you know, presenting to potential investors and guide you in that process. Because what I used to see many times in, in large companies, people come you know, with ideas half-baked, and that becomes a problem because, you know, first kind of damage your reputation straight away because they see that there was not very you know, a lot of thought through that. And second, it becomes uh, a, a very early stage, it means that you get to give most of what you have away because, you no, know, if you're having very early stage, they're going to get most of what you have. Well, I'll let that for CSA or to comment because I think I better focus on the startup. But if you want to start up, you can you know, have, like, have your own fund if you have access to it or get a group of friends that can help you with that. And start to, the further you take the idea, the better it's for you. The further you make the investment, the longer you can take it. And if you can have any other source of revenue to take it as fast as far, further away you can, further ahead you can, the better you secure that for yourself because you get much more, first you get a much more solid proposal, much stronger case to anyone. Or is a, you know, if you want to do your own uh, startup, you can have you know, some fund that will require that. And also, you secure much more for yourself because the early you go to give away, the more you give away. The global company to distribute 
itself. Do you have experience in this area? Have you created a company before? Do you know how to manage the business? All these things that inquire. No. All these things need to be thought through. It's like in, 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 it's good to, if you have experience to work for a large company before, that would help you because you have an understanding of how corporation operates. If you have operated any business before, that would help you because you haven't sent off all the requirements. You need legal support, you need accounting, you need uh, insurance, all the things that people don't think about. You have to, to think. And then for someone that never created a company, it's very daunting because I remember when I created my first company, it's just like you, you have thousands of things to think at the same time. And it appears to be like you know, a avalanche of decisions to be made in a very short period of time. But what you learn is you don't need to make those decisions straight away every day. What you learn by creating a business is that you can take your time and get the first things first, and then you can actually build the, the, the business from zero, slowly, slowly, and take care of building the things that are more important. And once we've done that for a small business, you learn that it's just to replicate that process again. Means that you might... Uh, consider having someone on board that already has created a business or has managed a business to help you with those things that no one ever thought, right? And um, must, again, go back to the, I always think about what's the product that I'm selling. What's that? Because, you no, know, you mentioned is a diagnostic for tuberculosis, right? Well, maybe you can be used for other applications. Maybe, for example, you think, oh, I might give it to people traveling overseas and become like a, a travel uh, a diagnostic. You know what I'm it doesn't need to be going straight to have diagnosed tests and tuberculosis. You can say, okay, I can supply this as a travel health uh, complement for people that go overseas to test when they come back. Things like that you can make some revenue straight away from the country where you're operating. I always have this think outside the box because you might find that although the main game is somewhere else, there might be a niche opportunity that can give you some revenue at early stage, and then you can uh, use that, right? Because yeah. no, I can imagine people travel to many countries when they come back to Australia. They might want to test what we have and then we have a kind of a, a small business to start with. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Julie. I think that's great advice. Something that just comes to mind before I pass it on to Natasha, um, Nick. Quick question for you. Is having a provisional patent the real protection? I mean, to me, it sounds like, uh, you know, giving a toy to a kid and asking, asking him or her not to open it before Christmas. You know, it's not a real protection, is it? Well, it, it, it sounds like um, it's, a, it's a flimsy type of protection, but it, it, it in effect, uh, doesn't offer any different type of protection to any other kind of patent. Uh, the first file of patent establishes what is called the international filing date. So if a patent is granted in any particular country, it's retrospective back to the original filing date. Um, so for example, if, if you filed on the 1st of October provisional application, and then 12 months later, you filed a US patent application that was eventually granted, those rights effectively flow back right to the original filing date. And yeah, I generally recommend the uh, provisional application is normally the best way to start off the process. It reserves your rights in about 177 countries. And just gives you the opportunity to add improvements and, and figure out which countries would be commercially appropriate at the end of the 12 months. I had a quick question for Julio Gandrom. Is that all right? Yes. Yeah, so having been an academic this far, uh, I was wondering if there are skill sets that are co completely different from what an academic would have, let's say, starting up a lab versus I, an actual startup. Sorry. Can I throw this question to Natasha? I've, I've discussed yeah, of course. Natasha before. I think she's got something to say. Natasha, do you want to... 
Yeah, I'll I'll come in now. Thank you. Um, awesome. It's been great to hear from everybody. My good news is that I don't conflict with everyone. Um, I really see um, startups and an investment in startups as a bit of a team exercise. So you need everybody to play a part. And I think, you know, listening to Julio, um, you know, startups are a very, very big undertaking. I've done one myself. But the thing is, is you handle it as teams. And um, Vashnavi, the, the truth is that, yes, a, quite a different skill set is needed um, for startups. And it doesn't mean that academics can't be fantastic entrepreneurs. But quite often what happens is teams are formed that all cover off in different areas of expertise. Um, and at Uniseed, I'm an investment manager there. Um, you know, we don't expect uh, academics to leave the institutions that they're in. You know, we will form a commercial team in a, a company that will often fund a lab to do the research and, and take it um, up, to, up to the next level. So I think everyone can work well together. Um, what I will say is, um, well, I'll say, you know, obviously when you're talking to an investor, what I'm thinking of all the time is return on investment because we have people who give us money and in this case some very, you know, the, the biggest universities and the CSIRO. And my job is to give them more money back than they've given me. <laughs> so when I'm talking to you, I'm actually more interested in a potential business than I am in your research. And that often is um, the issue when researchers talk to me. They will talk, you know, for an hour nonstop about their research, but, but nothing about the business. And so what I really want to hear is things like the total market. You know, how big is how much money is being spent um, on tuberculosis um, diagnostics at the moment? Um, and, you know, is your test better? Is it worse? You know, is it cheaper to produce? Um, I also really want to hear about the level of the, you know, what TRL level you're up to um, and do you have a working prototype and, and what is your data saying and is your data, you know, better in terms of accuracy and speed and all of those things than anything else in the market. So they're the types of things that I'm listening out for. Um, patents are actually really important in this area. They're not always, but because it will take you a while to get to market, we need to make sure that someone's just not going to come in and, you know, and, and knock you out of the way. Um, so that's really important. But um, to begin with, you're not going to know answers to a lot of these questions so I would really encourage you to call on the resources in um, in the institution um, that you're working in so for example with UNSW yes go and speak to knowledge exchange which is the tech transfer office and have them begin to help you answer some of these questions and point you in the right direction the other wonderful resource you've got is UNSW founders so, you know, if you put yourself through those programs, you will actually get a really good pitch deck, which answers a lot of the questions that I'm looking for, which is, you know, who are your customers? Um, how are you going to get to them? What's going to be the cost of your device? How much are you going to be able to sell it for? What is the regulatory path, as Jul you know, Julio mentioned? That's super important in this area because you're not going to be able to sell it and, until you've got, you know, permission from the TGA or the FDA or whatever it is. Um, 
And you're also going to be able to tell me about how much revenue you're going to make and eventually what you might sell your business for, which is what I want to know to figure out how much to invest in you. So there's a whole bunch of things that I'm looking for, but I think the main thing is that you don't have to do it alone and you don't actually have to leave academia most of the time to do it. So you can follow this path. It's a harder path, but I believe it's a much more satisfying path, even if you've done it like I have and you've had your ass kicked around town. I would not change a single thing and I'd do it all over again. So I'd really recommend you uh, you, you start on the path and, and have early conversations with folks like me because we can also help you along the path too. Great. Uh, can I just ask, maybe, Marcel, can I ask you a quick question? I think um, so there are quite a few skills here uh, Vashnavi needs to learn if she wants to go down you know, and create a startup. Um, how, how much time would you give her as an academic to spend on this maybe distraction? You know, or would you see it as a distraction as a com- or as a complementary uh, endeavor to her academic career? Yeah, I think it is. There is a um, uh, certainly wouldn't see it as a distraction. Uh, we have other academics that have um, uh, quite strong and significant commercial interests and are prosecuting these things on the side. And it's seen very much as part of core business and um, and also part of what what the university and the school celebrates in, in what we do. So the support there is, is is certainly very real and you wouldn't think that that, you know, um, wouldn't marginalise the time commitment required to do that. But I guess, you know, as, as all good entrepreneurs, you know, they, 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 they find more than seven and a half hours in their working day to, to mm. get everything done. Good. Okay. Thanks, Marcel. Um, so maybe... Last but not least, Martha, thank you very much. I'm very uh, grateful for you to joining us um, today. I think uh, you're in a bit of a um, weird situation where we don't often speak with large biotech companies like CSL. So thanks very much. Um, how would you approach Vashnavi? What, what advice would you give her? Thanks, Ram. It's my pleasure to be part of this event today. And Vashnavi, you've certainly got uh, a lot of really great options ahead of you and, and a difficult choice. And, and I guess to start with, uh, I would really echo some of what Natasha and others have said in that all of these paths, they're not mutually exclusive and you can certainly go down multiple paths at once. In fact, you could go down all paths at once if you were able to find a, a farmer investor who wanted to co-invest with with. Uh, another investor such as Natasha to form a startup. So, you know, it's it's definitely not um, a mutually exclusive decision for you. Um, obviously, my job today is to talk about uh, partnering with pharma and, and licensing. So perhaps we'll put that scenario to the side and and I'll focus on some of the, the benefits that, that we really think um, would be there for you if you went down that path. Um, certainly we would encourage you and, and, and want you to continue your academic pursuits. Um, I think that's really important, having a strong team and talent and the infrastructure and capabilities around you in, in that nurturing environment is really, really, really important for, for every early um, academic and, and pharma partnership to be successful um, because all of that work at this early stage is not going to be done in-house generally at the pharmaceutical company. It'll be very much a collaboration. Um, so we, we would want you to do that. We at CSL are also very passionate about publishing. Of course, you need to have a clear IP strategy. Um, We would not expect you to do that on your own. We have a a very strong team of global IP experts who would work with you. But importantly, they would work with your tech transfer and commercialisation office. 
um, on the right IP strategy. And, I, and that's something else I want to stress that, you know, being at an academic institute, it's really important that you partner and have a really close relationship with your tech transfer office because they are your gateway into people such as myself um, and other companies and investors such as Natasha and Uniseed and others, um, you know, we really uh, at CSL, we, uh, we primarily interact with, with people in these offices um, and, and they're our gateway to you as the researchers. And ultimately, we will be, um, you know, I'm not the scientist at CSL who would be working with you. I would be your gateway to those scientists. So those relationships are really important. Uh, and as Natasha also said, preparing that pitch deck and many of the questions that Natasha would like to see and the answers she would like to see, we would also want to see of you too. And, and your, your tech transfer partner would, would be critical in helping you flesh that out. Um, the other thing I, I would really like to, to emphasise is that the best partner for you is not necessarily the partner with the biggest checkbook. Um, and I think you have to be really, really careful about choosing who the right partner is. You want somebody who's got a track record in developing, manufacturing and marketing the technology that you have. So in this case, a diagnostic for TB. Um, you know, CSL is a biopharmaceutical company. Um, we, we don't manufacture diagnostic tests. So we would, we would actually be a poor choice for, for this technology. Um, but, you know, again, putting that to, to the side, I think that that helps illustrate this point. You need to make sure you've got a partner there who can do the job that you need them to do uh, and, has, and is going to prioritise that, um, you know, obviously they're going to have a pipeline of opportunities that they need to consider and you need to be sure that your technology is going to have a you know a strong place amongst those competing priorities so let's just say uh, you know putting to the side that CSL obviously would not be a good choice for this particular technology you know I think some of the benefits that, that you would have um, if you did partner with a company like CSL, if it was an area that we were, were specifically aligned in, is that you'd be bringing together, you know, experts in biology or, or experts in the area of technology such as yourself with experts in drug development um, and, and experts with a, a proven track record and the capabilities and the expertise needed to take this invention all the way to market. In a sense, you can cut out the middleman by partnering directly with pharma. So, you know, any return that you get from, from your pharma partnership will go straight to, to the university. It won't be diluted. Um, and I think what I, what I would also say from the CSL perspective is, you know, if we are investing in a very early program such as this, um, generally it wouldn't start with a, with a licensing deal. It would start with a collaboration. Um, and we would typically provide funding to advance the research. Um, and what would, we would ask for in return is, is an option to exclusively license the outcomes of that research. But importantly, if we decide not to take that option, we, we typically would, would not require any further reach through or rights to, to the work that has been done using our funding. So you would then be free to go back to Natasha or to form a startup or to go to another company and take those results that you've generated with our funding um, to, to further your, your development and your technology. So I think that's something worth, worth thinking about. Some of the, some of the drawbacks, um, I guess, in terms of working with large companies, I, I've already mentioned that large companies have a portfolio that they need to manage. They're not going to be solely focused on your asset and you need to therefore make sure you've got a really strong relationship with that, with that company and the people you're working with. You can't just sort of sign the agreement and then think, okay, well, let's 
let's let's hope this all just works out and keep going along um, day to day. You want to make sure that you're really connected in with the people at the company. You're meeting regularly. You're discussing your results. You're making sure you're getting that input that you need to really drive that along. You know, astoundingly, most partnerships. Um, fail for non-technical reasons. I think something like more than 70% of farmer academic partnerships fail for non-technical reasons. And so it's just really important that you build that relationship and, and put the time in that you need. Um, I think that that pulls together a lot of what I wanted to say today to you. You know, I think um, there are there are lots of different paths. There are many right paths. Um, there are some wrong paths. I would encourage you to think really about your technology and what is going to be the best path to enable you to get that technology to market. Um, you need to think about how are you going to do the trials that you need to do, how you're going to manufacture the, the, the tests that you need to manufacture and how you're going to market that and sell that and who is going to be the best person or which path is going to be the best path to help you do that. Um, do your diligence. Um, don't go with the only offer that's on the table build a strong relationship with your tech transfer office um, and I'm sure you'll be, you'll be doing, doing very well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Martha. Um, Vashnavi, is there, before we go to Erin, is there something you want to clarify with one of our um, bidders? Um, no, I think it's been pretty clear. Uh, there's a lot for me to think about, of course, uh, but apart from that, uh, I think I don't have any questions at the moment. Great. Okay. Okay, fine. Well, um, I ask Erin to um, come and speak now uh, because Erin has a lot of experience in, um, with researchers who've gone through one of these or, or multiple of these pathways. Um, she will be the fact checker. If anyone's of a song, Erin has a license to call them out. Or <laughs> if there's something else you've seen or you, you know that Vashnavi should be aware of or, sh or any question she should have asked. Yeah, sure. Um, Vashnavi, how about I start just with how I would always start with a researcher that comes to chat to me about something that they're doing. Um, so normally what I start with is just trying to identify with the researcher what success would look like. So for you, what would that look like in the end? Would it be that your diagnostic product is on the market? Would it be that lots of people are using it? Uh, would it be that you've got a nature science cell paper and everyone cited it or you're now full professor I'd say both, yeah. um, so those sorts of yeah. questions <laughs> in this instance I'd say it's both right because um, of course I'll have to look out for uh, the students or the postdocs that are um, that I'm mentoring at the moment as well as of course for the big picture which is to get it out into the market so both I think yep. that's possible okay okay so once we have identified by particularly that a commercial outcome, so getting a product on the market would be something that would be interesting to you. Then we start looking at the individual technology. So first of all, when I hear diagnostics, I immediately go to, and I'm going to throw to Nick now, um, and I haven't prepped him on this, but for me, diagnostics and IP positions in different countries are really hard depending on what territory you're looking at. Um, Nick, is there anything around the IP strategy, particularly around a diagnostic that we should be thinking about at this early stage? Look, I mean, as far as what I understand about the diagnostic process, you know, technical processes are patentable. In some countries, it's difficult to patent methods of treatment um, and so on and so forth. But if, if, if it's a technical process, it's essentially no different to any other kind of technical process. And the invention could be claimed in the steps of the method um, that achieve the outcome. Um, but, you know, it, it, it would appear to be, you know, within the scope of a, of a normal 
a normal type of patent claim as far as I can understand from the technology today. Okay. Um, and so Vashnavi, that's what we would normally do. We'd normally get advice really early, particularly around, you know, the particular invention and, and uh, what pathway we might need to take on it. Um, and then the next thing that I would probably ask you and whether you've spoken to clinicians about whether they would make a different decision if they had the result of this test. So is there something that someone could do after they got this information? Um, and so having um, clinicians involved, particularly for any of these, you know, health biomedical plays, you need to know really early that this is something that might fall into how they might treat someone. Yeah, so that's a great point. I, we haven't started talking to clinicians, of course, and that's something we should definitely be doing. Yep. Yep. And, and so that probably falls into the um, category of what a number of other people have spoken about is getting that feedback. So really chatting to people and trying to identify also the difference between there's an edge user. So there's a, someone that might take this test, but in a lot of countries, that's not the person that pays for the test. Um, so trying to separate between who is the end user versus who is the payer. Um, and that might be very different. That's very different in Australia versus in the US. Um, and so different markets will have different pathways to that. So one of the benefits in healthcare of working with a large company, someone like CSL or a pharmaceutical, is along with regulatory, it's actually that reimbursement. Who pays is the really important bit. Um, so being able to just really at a high level, trying to identify that sort of stuff really, really quickly, at least um, from, you might not have all the details around it, but it, it's good to get advice really early on about all of those things. So um, if you were working with your tech transfer office at UNSW, uh, you would be chatting to them and they would start to uh, link you up with people just to have these really early stage conversations. Um, most of the time, the technology itself, while it is, you know, the most important thing to you, um, as a number of other people have said, it's probably uh, further down the, their list of priorities. They're really interested in uh, what needs to be done next, what sort of pathways. I guess to pick up on another point as well um, is that while it's really good to help um, take something further in an R&D pipeline, um, sometimes running off in a direction that's not necessarily aligned with where an investor or a startup or a company might take it, um, it can actually take you down a pathway that kind of closes off doors as well. Um, so that's why we really like to get advice from experts in the field of these particular diagnostic devices really early, just to make sure we don't, you know, start down a pathway that takes us in an opposite direction. So whatever you decide to do, definitely early on, it's about chatting to as many people as you can, not necessarily about how your device, how your diagnostic works, but if you had something that was able to diagnose TB, what, what would be the useful part of it? How much would it need to cost? How quickly would you need to get that result? Um, you know, what's the supply chain look like? And so, I mean, a lot of the people on the call can help you out with that information. Um, and none of this is exclusive. So you could be an academic, you could have, um, you know, chatted with your commercialization office, got your IP, you filed your provisional. Um, then you go off to Justin and you submit your manuscript for um, nature cell science. <laughs> no, nature science cell. I'm like, <laughs> I can't remember what this is. I, I feel a society of unbelievable research is probably not the best place to put something. <laughs> Um, and then continue down. I mean, in in the case of companies like CSL, for instance, or other pharmaceutical companies, um, often 
the technology might still be a bit too early for them. So sometimes it's people like Natasha and other venture capitalists that are able to help progress that in a startup company to a certain point where a pharmaceutical company is happy that it's been de-risked enough. So they've been able to push that a bit further in terms of taking that investment and putting it into a package that is then attractive to a pharmaceutical. So whether a pharmaceutical might invest really early or, you know, at a later round or in perhaps even just buy the whole company because suddenly it's really attractive. All of those are options. So none of these things necessarily close a door for anything else. It's really just about getting the timing right. So making sure that you do the steps in the right order um, and then continuing to check back in with experts and with people that are in that market, in that sort of technology development and just making sure that you're keeping up to date around things. Um, So those are all the things that we would consider. Um, I I don't think anyone's really said anything that's, um, that's, you know, too off the mark in terms of how I would necessarily approach it. Um, So uh, I think it's really trying to decide what's that best fit. So 100% agree with Martha in terms of it is, you need to find, you know, the partnership that works the best to get you that end result. And that might be very focused around, you know, an organisation that has a particular technology manufacturing capability. It might be, you know, a sophisticated investor that's done it before and knows all the tricks in terms of um, getting that regulatory pathway really streamlined. Um, it might be working with an academic institution that's done it so many times that they've just got that process really quick and streamlined or, um, you know, an entrepreneur that's really gone through it before and knows where the pitfalls are. Um, And 100% in terms of Justin and wanting to make sure that people know about what you're doing. That's how you raise profile and that's how you potentially get investors and companies interested in what you're doing because they are scanning all of those top level journals as well. So just by putting something in one of those journals, they might reach out to you. Mm. Great. Thanks, Erin. Maybe quickly... um, I think only Justin said that um, you'll be able to publish very quickly. So we're talking weeks here, Justin, right? Great. Yes, that's correct. Um, you know, in the journal that I edit, I think it's um, less than six weeks typically to, to online. So yeah. speed, it's very different the biological sciences to the chemical sciences, but in the chemical sciences, speed is of the essence. Plus, I should also say that most journals now support um, – uh, papers or ma- early stage manuscript being put on the archives, so the bio archive, the chem archive, the physics archives, and this is also another way of maybe capturing your priority date from the academic perspective as distinct from the commercial perspective. Maybe, Marcel, typically how long would a contract be for in academia? Um, most academic contracts would, would start for uh, um, uh, group leaders for five years would be typical. And then potentially, um, if that goes well, go into continuing permanent contracts. Thank you. Natasha, how long before you asked Vashnavi to or her startup to give you money back? <laughs> uh, it always just depends, but... You know, I think most investors want to see five to ten, but we're we're an evergreen fund, so we've got a little bit more um, flexibility around that. But of course, as soon as you get other investors involved, they've got a specific time for their fund, and so then you start running on their timeline. And especially if you've got them on the board, you'll start finding that you know there's there's a push to reach 
an exit, basically, when they can uh, get it. Maybe uh, same question for, for you, Julio. How long before, you know, you started your um, uh, startup company and the time uh, the product goes to market? You're on mute. Yes. So, yeah, sorry. It, it varies with the investor, different investors. In this case that I can see is a product that needs a you know, FDA or TGA license. We're talking about a much longer term. Like in terms of a product that's not licensed, like the product that we created, and then we're talking about five years to ten years, then we might start to see the money back. In this, in the FDA case, you have more you know, long-term investment because you know, the, the process can be very long. And again, I, I believe diagnostics are a bit different than you know, a drug or some therapeutic goods because they also have much more stringence on the on the FDA approval. But no that one is I think we're talking about more than 10 years for you to get the product to the market and start to look at revenue. Thanks Julia. Erin or Vashnavi, did you want to ask any any more questions or Erin, did you want to add anything? Vashnavi, you good? Okay. Yeah. Confused but good. <laughs> okay, so we're going to try and ask everyone to help Vashnavi make a decision. So I've got a poll here. You should see that now. Um, let's see. So which pathway or pathways would you recommend Vashnavi to follow here? Who should you... Should, and and you, can, you can vote for more than one. Pretty equal. Can you see the results as well? Oh, sorry. I can make that visible. Hmm. Well, it's very equal. So um, 57% of people would uh, say Natasha will be your best partner, but also, uh, you know, 40, 50% would go with Marcel and Justin. And and forty percent would go with Julian Mart actually, so they oh, everyone's between forty and fifty or 50, forty and sixty percent, very close, so, very close. It's not yet. Yeah, it's actually quite close. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Natasha, you're you're the winner today. Thank you. Great. Can we get Aaron to fact check that, please? Yeah. <laughs> I will send you a, a screenshot, Erin, so you can confirm uh, I didn't lie here. Yeah. Great. I think we've got just a couple of minutes left. Um, I just wanted to thank all the panelists. I wanted to thank uh, Vashnavi for joining us from Bangalore today. I know it's early in the morning. Thank you very much for that, Vashnavi. Um, thanks, Marta. Thanks, Justin, Nick, Natasha, Marcel, Julio, and Erin. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak to us today. I had three goals today. Uh, one I wanted to was to highlight different pathways that are available to maximize um, research impact. I think that's a tick. I wanted to show that these pathways are not exclusive and can actually be very complementary. I think that's a tick. And I also wanted to introduce you to real expert people who you know, do science or invest in science and can really help you um, have, a, have an impact. I think uh, that's it for me. It's nearly the end. Thanks, everyone, for attending. Thanks uh, to the panelists again for, for joining us today.
Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Research for what?